J-Mac set us up really well and moved the story forward. And as you can see, the story is getting closer and closer to home, closer to you. I mean, we could talk about Abraham, we could talk about Moses, and there's certainly lessons from their life of faith that we see and can emulate. But that story is not our story personally as much. We were not lost in the wilderness. We were not slaves in Egypt. Most of us are not Israelites or Jewish people. And so tonight, we need to get to the part of the story that helps us understand what exactly are we doing now? If we learned earlier this morning that Jesus is doing something now, namely praying for us, holding us up, persevering us, making sure that every believer who trusts in him will be glorified to the end, that's what Jesus is doing. We're now at the part of the story where we answer the question, well, what are we supposed to be doing? What's happening right now? And what we're gonna talk about tonight is we're gonna talk about the church. We're gonna talk about the church. And when I say church, you think of building, probably. Or you think of your church back home. Maybe you think of the pews, or the pastor, or the music, or the youth group. But we mostly think about buildings when we think about the word church. And tonight I wanna challenge you to expand your thinking about the church because I wanna answer two questions tonight. Two questions from I'm going to let the, the New Testament speak, but mainly two different verses to answer these two important questions so that you can understand how the church fits into the story. But the two questions are this. The first question is, how does the church fit into God's story? Because that's the story we're telling. The one story is God's story of salvation, redemption, recreation from the beginning of creation, even eternity past, to God making this world all the way to what we'll talk about tomorrow morning, which is recreation, heaven itself, a paradise restored and regained, a people redeemed and rescued. How does the church fit into God's story? That's question number one. Question number two is how do we, or let's make it more personal, how do you fit in to the story of the church? So question number one is how do, does the church fit into God's story, the big story? Second question is more personal, one that you need to answer, but I want to help you understand biblically how you should answer it. How do you fit into the story of the church? So that's the mission. You with me? We can do this. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And let's just try to grab this story real quick, where we left off and where we've been. God created the world. Without going into the individual aspects of it, the world was plunged into death and sin because of the fall of mankind. God, because he's merciful, rescued a people, created a people from one man so that they would be his people. And he worked with them in spite of their disobedience for all those centuries. That's the story of the Old Testament. We looked at it just the other night. Then a time of silence came after all the work of the prophets, after all the disobedience and forgiveness and grace that God showed to his people Israel. Uh, the time came when there was a final prophet, and Josh talked about him uh, the other night, John the Baptist, and he announced the Messiah, the one who would be that perfect king and the ultimate priest and that prophet like no other prophet, the one that the book of Hebrews calls the final word from God, because God had spoken and spoken and spoken through prophets and uh, through law and through burning bush and through uh, a voice from heaven and angelic messengers. God had talked and talked and talked and talked all through the Old Testament to his people in mercy, showing himself to the nation of Israel, redeeming them, rescuing them, 
teaching them, instructing them, guiding them, protecting them, saving them over and over again. And God had spoken and talked God talk all through the Old Testament. But a time came when Jesus was incarnate, when he became a man, when he was born in that manger and then lived a perfect life. He was what the author of Hebrews calls the final word from God, the ultimate revelation of God. You had heard about God, you had seen manifestations of God and words from God and prophecies from God, but now you see God himself perfectly personified in Jesus Christ, the exact image of God. And what did God do? He sent his son to show us himself and to save us from our sin, to answer that problem that could never be solved by 10,000 sacrifices in the temple, by all of the offerings that Israel ever made, he would die in our place. And then he would ascend on high, leaving his spirit to indwell us and keep us, to teach us and minister to us, And Jesus would stay active. He hears your prayers and he prays for you. He feels what you feel and he is on your behalf before God. That's what we learned from JMAC this morning. And what's happening now after Jesus went to heaven in God's story is God is continuing something in this world through no longer a nation, but through a gathering of people from every nation in a special body on this earth that exists from the time of the coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts all the way to when Jesus returns. And that time and that people is called the church. It is not accurate to think about the church as a parenthesis in God's plan. It's also not accurate to think about the church as the the final and only uh, plan of God for this world, because the Bible clearly will show that God isn't done working with his people. Romans 9 through 11 says that God will restore Israel and they will come to him by repentance at a future time. The book of Revelation describes that national repentance when God's people who rejected the Messiah, the Jewish people, will come back to God. But that's not what we're talking about tonight, not yet. What I need you to hear from me tonight is that the church is a continuation of God's mission. How the church fits into the story of God is, I think, best described in the verse in front of us, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. And if you have a tendency to think little of the church, to think that the church isn't that important, or to think the church is small or insignificant, or to think of the church in regards to her imperfections, because she isn't perfect. The churches all over your town have flaws and are made up of imperfect people. And some people stop going to church and they say, we heard a Q&A about that this morning. I, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Uh, I would love the church if it wasn't for all the lousy, mean people in the church. People talk like that about the church. So if you have a tendency to think down on the church, to think little about the church, I want you to understand that the church is actually God's people, that God is continuing the plan he started with Israel in a new people called the church. That's a, a group of people from every tribe and tongue and nation over every age as God is saving people and redeeming people. And there's Jews in the church and there's Gentiles in the church. And it's all people unified by Jesus, not by the nation they're from, not by their particular color of skin, not by their gender. Uh, men, women, Black people, white people, people from the South, people from the North, people from the East, people from the West. The church is made up of people from this world who God has called individually to be a part of his family, a part of his bride. And this passage shows us what that looks like. And it reminds us that when you're part of the church, when you've been forgiven of your sins and you 
become a part of, of one of these local gatherings we call churches, that you're actually part of something very large that exists outside of your city and across all of history that stretches back to God's people in Israel and stretches forward all the way to the return of Christ and is a beautiful picture of God's glory because what God is doing and what God was doing in Israel finds a fulfillment in what God is doing in your local churches. And so I want you to not think small of the church or less of the church or belittle the church in your mind because a right understanding of the church and how she fits into God's plan will give you this sense of profound gratitude to God because the church is something very, very special to God, very something very, very precious to God, something that God sent his son to die for, something that God will preserve and protect, something that Jesus prays for and intercedes for and that Jesus will make sure that the church makes it all the way to glory. This is the plan of God. And we see it in this passage, and it will not allow you to have a low view of the church, even in her local versions. All of you know about these versions with steeples on their roofs or that meet in a shopping center, mall kind of a thing, or that have a brick building or that have no building and meet in a middle school. These churches are actually an incredible portrait to God's grace. Let me show it to you in the Bible. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. You are, Peter writes to these churches in the greater Asia area, just one generation after the apostles. Peter's an old man at this point, and there's only a few apostles left. And he says to them, you are, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the very word of God. That language should sound familiar to you if you've heard Old Testament stories. Peter calls church people chosen people. And there's more there than just the doctrine of election, that God chooses people, that God rescues people, not because they chose him, but because he chose them. That's what the doctrine of election is about. It definitely indicates that. But he's using a name for the church that he used for the people of Israel, also known as a chosen people. He gets this from way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I know I talk about Deuteronomy a lot. It's because it was, it's my favorite book. And that's just because it was Jesus's favorite book. So he quotes from it more than any other book. Look it up. Okay, so a chosen people, Deuteronomy 7. You may wonder, you know, why was it Abraham? Why did God pick him? Remember, he was a moon worshiper. He was just a regular pagan guy. Did God see something great in Abraham? No. You see, God chose Israel. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says, not because of anything in them, not because they were greater than other people, not because they were better than other people, but God chose them because he loved them. You see, if you think about the doctrine of election of God's choosing people, whether it's a, a nation like Israel or whether it's individual salvation in the doctrine of election, understand that God's choice is not arbitrary. God's choice is not Russian roulette. God's choice is not eeny, meeny, miny, mo. God's choice is a choice based on love. It's based on love. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, I chose you because I loved you, because I set my love upon you. This reminds us that God's affection is involved in election. And if you are a Christian, it's because God loves you. That's why the apostle John says, we love God because he first loved us. God's love is the very source of the difficult doctrine of election. 
God chooses you for salvation. And the church is a people who need to see themselves not just as a random group of Baptists that meet in a small Texas town, but as the very choice people of God, that you're chosen by God. Do you understand how that elevates the church? That it's not just a human organization that a bunch of people said, hey, we should just start a church, and so they did. But there was something else going on there because those people were saved people. Those people were chosen people. Those people were loved by God people. And so they, when they came together to be a local church, were reflecting this greater reality that God is working across human history, first with the people of Israel and the true believers within that nation, and now in local churches. And local churches are much like Israel in that there are genuine believers in the church and there are not genuine believers in the church, fake believers, phony Christians, people who claim the name of Christ, but are actually just nasty religious people. Jesus said this. I'm not just being mean about it. He called them wheat and tares or scrumptious edible food and bad weeds that choke other stuff out. You see, Israel had within it a believing people people who were truly devoted to God, who trusted him by faith. And the church has within her walls genuinely converted people and then all kinds of other people, people who have not given their lives to Christ. And so to think about the church as a chosen people is to elevate our understanding of who she is. It also says that she's a royal priesthood. The church is seen as a royal priesthood. And that's something similar to what we heard about this morning. A royal priesthood is, is that parallel example in Israel of that special class of people who were descendants from Aaron. They were the Levites. They were the worship leaders in Israel. They were the ones who made the sacrifices in the temple. They were the ones who led the people in worship. And now all of God's people are considered priests. In some false versions of Christianity, like the Roman Catholic Church, priests are a special class of people. They are between the people and God, and they serve as go-betweens. But we, friends, are Protestants. And pastors, I can prove it, are not that special of people. I'll give you an example. I'm a Christian and a sinner just like you. I don't have special access to God. I don't have any fancy holy socks or something like that. In fact, I forgot to change my socks today. Too much information. But we are all a royal priesthood. A priest is someone who stands before God and the people. But in the New Testament, all of us are priests. All of us function in a way that is aware that Jesus is the only way to God and he's the only go-between between God and man. So every single Christian has access to God through Jesus. We all function as priests. And so the comparison between Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, and the church, God's people in the New Testament, and today, it carries on and he calls us a holy nation. Well, a nation has boundaries, doesn't it? A nation has borders, a nation has a ruler, a nation has a people as a part of it. And so the Christian church isn't nationally oriented. I mean, Peter was the one who preached on Pentecost in all kinds of languages that the people understood with this amazing gift that the Holy Spirit gave to him in fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Joel. And all of these people from all of these different countries come to faith in Yahweh through Jesus. And now they're worshiping the same God that the Jews have been worshiping. And now they're calling on the Messiah who was given to the Jewish people. And now they're called a nation. And why are they called a nation? Well, the important word there is holy. It's a holy nation. You see, it's not defined by a common president or an elected body of officials or even national borders. The church is defined by her purity, by her holiness. What sets the church apart is that there are people who've been forgiven and cleansed a people who reflect their God. And God is holy, and so his people are to be holy. 
It's why Peter said at the beginning of this letter, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. You see, you're not a Christian because you're holy. In other words, being right and being perfected and trying to do the right thing isn't what makes you a Christian. Making you a, being a Christian is what makes you holy. In other words, God died to make you his. He sent Jesus to make you his. And when he made you his, he makes you holy. And then you continue to pursue Christ-likeness and become this holy nation. That's why the church is called that. The next phrase is a people belonging to God. And that's a precious one, isn't it? If you thought the church was just like potlucks and youth groups and summer camp and then old people who like hymns, what if you recognize that the church is actually the property of God? He bought her with the blood of his son. And the church doesn't belong to the deacons and it doesn't belong to the elders and it doesn't belong to a board of directors and it doesn't belong to a pastor and it doesn't belong to you and me. The church belongs to God. That's awesome. I mean, a Chick-fil-A belongs to the guys who own Chick-fil-A, the bald guy on the wall and his sons or whatever. And then there's all these managers that own the Chick-fil-A and they don't, it's not really theirs. They just run it and hire teenagers and teach you to say, my pleasure. <laughs> but you know, they have, some, they have some status there. They're kind of in charge of the Chick-fil-A. He's the manager. They're Protestant or Mormon or whatever. You've been to Chick-fil-A. The church isn't like that. It's not your church. MacArthur tells a great story when he first came to Grace Church. It was, it was kind of a hot mess back then. It was 1956. Uh, Bing Crosby was singing songs. It was a long time ago. So there was somebody there who said, hey, I need you, preacher boy, to, because he was just a little fella then, I need you, Johnny, preacher boy, to officiate my daughter's wedding. Uh, she's a fine Christian young woman, and she's marrying this man. And MacArthur says, does the man go to our church? He says, no, he's, he's not a churchman. He doesn't go to church. Well, is he a Christian? And the guy who is like one of the leaders at the church is like, none of your business. And Mac goes, huh? Actually, Mac does this. He likes to do a shoulder thing. He goes, we call it at church the J-Mac shrug. It's very intimidating. So he does the J-Mac shrug and the guy gets really mad because MacArthur says he won't do the wedding. And it's like a young pastor and he's, this guy's mad at him. Who do you think you are? This is my church. You need to do this wedding. And MacArthur says, I can't. In, in, in my conscience, it won't let me. The Bible says a, a believer can't marry an unbeliever. And so this, this leader guy says, well, fine, we'll just use the church and somebody else would do it. And J-Mac looks at this dude. J-Mac's like 28 years old at this point. And this is some old, crusty, uh, diabolical, religious guy. And he says, fine, we'll just do it in this church. It's my church. And J-Mac says, it's not your church. It's not your church. This church belongs to Jesus. Who? J-Mac. He brings up a good point. You can own a Chick-fil-A, you can't own the church. You know why? Because God owns the church. If you think disparagingly of the church, if you think bad things about the church, you're thinking bad about God's possession. God owns her. She belongs to him. A people belonging to God. Well, that brings us to our second question. Our second question is what is, or how do you fit into the story of the church? Just to sum up, the church fits into God's story as a continuation of what he was doing in Israel, except on a larger scale. You get that, right? Israel is one nation and the church is all over the world for 2000 years preaching the gospel, people coming to faith in Christ, the church is God's global plan of making worshipers for himself. You see, with Israel, God was drawing this people to himself, this national people. 
And his goal isn't that Israel would be isolated, that they would just be separate from all the nations. They were supposed to be separate. They were supposed to be holy, but they weren't supposed to be isolated in the sense of keeping God to themselves. Instead, they were supposed to be a people who shone like a, like a light to the nations so that the nations would see God's covenant people, see Israel, see them worshiping the one true God, hear about God's great acts of deliverance, hear about what an amazing creator the one true God was, and then these people were to come to Israel to worship the true God. And there's stories in the Old Testament of that happening, awesome stories. Abraham's the biggest one. The whole start of it wasn't with a Jewish person. It was with a pagan person who became eventually the nation of Israel. But there's other stories of those who were, they call them proselytes. They're Gentiles that became Jews. You see, being a Jew wasn't about just being, having the same heritage and enjoying pita bread and, and other Jewish things. Being a true Jew meant that you had a heart that loved and worshiped and believed in God. And so you have these great stories of, of like that woman Rahab, remember her? a notorious sinner, a prostitute actually. But because she heard about the great works of God in Israel, she hid the spies and she said, I'm not with my people anymore, I'm with your people. And she became a part of Israel and even part of the line of the descendants that would lead to Jesus. Or somebody like Ruth, a Moabitess. Moabitesses were bad news. You weren't supposed to mix and mingle with Moabitesses, but... Boaz married Ruth. Why? Because she wasn't a Moabitess anymore. She said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. That's how Israel was supposed to function. And sometimes they did. I mean, even the Queen of Sheba, whoever that was, came to Solomon to see how awesome God's people really were and how God had blessed his people. But too often, Israel would instead be infatuated with other gods and would not be a good example. You see, the mission of Israel was to draw the nations in, to draw them in. And now the church continues that mission, but the direction has changed. As a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, we now are to go out into the world and declare who God is. The church fits into God's story by being this not attractional light predominantly, but a missionary agency that goes and tells people how great God is. Israel worshiped in a closed off way, in a temple that forbid those to enter. The church worships all over the earth, in villages and on mountaintops, wherever God's people are found. People become Christians by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, turning from their sins, believing on him, and then they form into groups of of Christians called churches, and then they go out into their villages and into the surrounding towns and into the surrounding countryside and then over the oceans and all over the world to tell people that God sent his son. His name is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for sinners like you. And there is no difference between these sinners in this nation and these sinners in this nation because the only name by which men can be saved is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So come to him and believe in him. That's the message that the church proclaims, continuing to be the people of God like Israel. But instead of being a magnet drawing them in, we are to be like centrifugal force flying out from churches all over the face of this world, individual Christians telling others about Jesus. And that's why this next verse answers the question, how do you fit in? Because of the church for centuries, famous missionaries, the apostles, the church fathers, the reformers, uh, the, the great revivalists, you know, famous Christian dead guys you've heard of, John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or Augustine or, or whoever, whatever famous Christian dead guys in your, your head, from Billy Graham to D.L. Moody to Irenaeus, Irenaeus. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ha, put that in your baby book. Somebody, I dare you to name your kid Irenaeus. It's a good one, isn't it? How does it all fit in? Well, you fit in because you're part of this great group of believers that cover the face of this world doing what it says in the second half of verse nine, declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Open your Bible to Matthew 28. Flip it over. It's already open. Flip it over. If you want to be real literal, you can close it and then open it to Matthew 28. You know this passage. It's Jesus' parting instructions to his disciples. And it wasn't just to the 12. It was to all who would follow his teachings. How do you fit into the story of the church? If the the church fits into the story of God by being a continuation of, of God drawing worshipers to himself so that this world could proclaim how great he is, then how do you fit in? Well, Jesus gave very specific instructions. Peter calls it declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Jesus says it this way, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them, that's the 11 disciples, up on the mountain before Jesus ascends. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus's commission, usually called the Great Commission, reminds us of what our job is as the church, as individual Christians fitting into this story This is what we are about. Now, don't get me wrong. Christians are supposed to be building disciples and reaching lost people. That's the two main things we do. That's what Jesus talks about here. Evangelism is the church talking about how great Jesus is, declaring his praises. And then that part about teaching them to obey and baptizing them, that's just part of discipleship. We're supposed to tell people about Jesus and then we're supposed to help other Christians grow, help each other grow. That's the two things the church and the people in the church are doing. That's how you fit in. But don't get me wrong. You should still buy groceries. What do I mean by that? Well, you may have noticed that not all Christians pack their stuff into a coffin and move to Papua New Guinea. Some do, and we call them missionaries. But there are faithful Christians who paint houses and fix cars and work in Hollywood and dig ditches or grow fruit or style hair or give people hair implants. If there's any of those people here, talk to me afterwards. I mean, there's 10,000 jobs. All of you guys used to want to be astronauts when you were little. So there's astronauts who love Jesus and who serve Jesus by being good and faithful astronauts, and they tell the gospel to other astronauts. And there's house painters who love Jesus. They've been saved from their sins, they've been forgiven, they're following after Jesus as disciples, and they tell the people they work with about Jesus. And then on Sunday, they go be with God's people and they help one another grow. They hold one another accountable. They love one another, serve one another, encourage one another. And so know that the Great Commission isn't just for those who go find people who have a bone in their nose who worship the God called Uka'aka. I made that up. It's not a real God as far as I know, but all other gods are made up gods, so I think it's totally cool I did that. 
In other words, the Great Commission is the mission of the church, and it is your mission as an individual Christian. Some of you will have a heart for homeless people, and you'll start a ministry doing that, but still the main thing that you're doing isn't just feeding homeless people. It's telling homeless people that they need to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, and then they're coming to church church on Sunday, and they're building up other Christians so that together they go out and tell others about Jesus. Do you see how whatever it is that you do with your life as a Christian, if you do it well, if you do it with integrity, if you work as unto the Lord, you can be a very effective evangelist and a very effective discipler, and you will be part of fulfilling the Great Commission. You'll be doing what Peter said is declaring the praises of God. Just as that nation Israel was supposed to make God look awesome because God is awesome. As a believer, as a redeemed person, as a forgiven person, you now also make Jesus look awesome. You are the fragrance of him in this dying world. You are salt and you are light and you are to show the greatness and glory of Jesus because Jesus is glorious and great and you do that by being a good employee at the mall and by being a good worker at the store and by managing your Chick-fil-A well. Understand this, your part in the church is so important. And I realize I'm talking to teenagers right now because there's nothing in the Bible that says, you know, once you're 22, then you can be a really useful part of the church. I mean, Mary was like 14 and the Lord used her mightily in a way that I promise he won't use you. There's all kinds of examples in the Bible of of young people not being despised, but by being used mightily of God. And, And you need to have this elevated perspective of the church and God's story and an understanding of your role in the church that you also are supposed to be going out to evangelize others. Just like we saw in the video, start a Bible club, start a conversation at lunch, start anything, say Jesus out loud to someone else and tell them who he is and what he's done for you and then go and be with God's people on the Lord's day and encourage them in their faith. Love them, help them, serve them. They're called the one another's in the Bible and you don't have to be out of your teenage years to practice them. In fact, the church, your church needs you. She needs your strength. She needs your energy. She needs your passion for Christ. So come home from camp and be about the church. Be about reaching the world. And you'll be doing exactly what Peter says. Go back to 1 Peter real quick. 1 Peter 2. You'll be declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What possible motivation do you have? Well, Jesus commanded you to do it. Matthew 28 should be enough. But I think what you've heard this week is God's redemption story. And you haven't heard the end yet. And the end is more awesome worship. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But the motivation is there in verse 10. Read it with me. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, to live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you see how Christians are to show people Jesus through their lives of holiness, but they're to use their words to tell people about Jesus. That's the mission of the church and it's your mission as you commit your life to serving God's people and being a part of the worship of God. One of the most frustrating things about ministering to students 
is having them believe the lie that they are not a part of the church. I mean, just because your youth group meets in the smelliest and worst room in the church doesn't, you know what I'm talking about, doesn't, they, they felt that one, doesn't mean that you're a, a second-class citizen to what God is doing in that place and around the world. I ran into a kid once. When you're a youth pastor for since the Neolithic age like me, um, I've seen dinosaurs. I, I ran into this kid, and I recognized him because of his beady little eyes. But he had grown a beard, and he wasn't a kid anymore. He was a college student, and I ran into him at Starbucks. It's before I repented to the third wave coffee movement. And he was uh, working at a barista, as a barista, working a barista. He was working as a barista. And this story's hard to tell, so we'll call him Seth, because his name was Seth. (laughs) And I'm like, Seth, is that you behind that mangy beard? And he said, hey, Pastor Austin, what's up? Good to see you. And I hadn't seen this kid in a long time. Used to be in my youth group. And he's talking to me and he's making my coffee. And and I ask him the question I always ask when I run into some kid that used to be in the youth group that disappeared. And and I said, hey, Seth, are you still a Christian? And he goes, "Ah!" he's like super offended by that question. Now, granted, it's kind of an offensive question, but that's why I ask it. I don't have time for not blunt. So are you still a Christian? He says, of course I'm still a Christian. Uh, 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 Yeah. And then I have a follow-up question, equipment. And and I asked him, so where do you go to church? Because you don't go to our church anymore. I haven't seen you around. And he says, oh, yeah, you know, I'm in college now. I'm super busy. Because in college, you have to play video games all night. Just (laughs) FYI. I'm super busy, got a lot going on. Yeah, I see you're, you're running the Starbucks here. And, you know, so I go to, I kind of go to this church sometimes and I go to that church and I have a friend that goes to this church and, you know, I, this guy helps in the band at this church, so I go into that one sometimes. And this pastor's funny, so I go there sometimes. And, and I'd heard it all before. And, and so I asked, I told Seth, you know, that he doesn't go to church because going to church isn't just, attending random churches. To go to church is to have accountability. It's to join a church. It's to be a part of a church. I mean, there's no such thing as a New Testament Christian that was just like wandering around on his own. That's why the letters in this book are called Galatians, because it was a church in Galatia. Ephesians, because it was a church in Ephesus. Colossians, a church in Colossae. Christians belong to local churches. And I told Seth, where's your accountability? You got no accountability. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody's caring about your soul. Nobody's teaching you and instructing you and and you're not, they're not being able to benefit from your spiritual gifts. Young people, if you have an elevated view of the church, first off, you'll see the church as this awesome movement of God to show himself to the world through the witness of faithful believers from the time of the people of God in the Old Testament all the way to the consummation of all things at the end of the age. You will have a high view of God's work in the world as he redeems sinner to himself and as he makes a bride for his son. But you will also have a personal responsibility to serve the church, to love the church, to witness together, to evangelize together, and to disciple one another so that we are all being faithful to Jesus together. Why? 1 Peter 2.10. Because you know where you were and you know who you are now. Do you realize that a time in your life, there was a time in your life when you were not a people. That doesn't mean that you weren't a human, like you were a creature alien before. It means that you were not a people. In other words, you weren't part of God's people. You weren't a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You were lost. You were dead in your sins and transgressions. You hated God and you hated one another. You are the object of God's pity and God's wrath. You were not a people. 
you had not received mercy. Friends, that's some of you tonight. Some of you tonight have not yet received the mercy of God. And there's Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's the gospel saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's the book of Romans saying, make no provision for the flesh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, no longer giving in to your lust. Some of you need to receive the mercy of God and you shouldn't wait any longer than tonight. But those of you who have, know that there was a point in time, maybe you don't know the day, maybe you don't know the month, but you know that there was a time when you were not a people of God, you were not a Christian, you were not a royal priesthood, you were not a chosen people, you were not declaring his praises, and now everything has changed, so you have changed, and you have a compassionate obligation to tell others about Jesus and disciple one another, to fulfill the great commission so that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Every one of us are debtors to God, debtors to the gospel. And so we go and we tell and we gather and we worship and we build one another up and we learn and we teach and we disciple and we baptize and we sing and we sermonize and we love other believers like family because that's what God's doing in the church and that's what you are doing in the story of the church. There's a story preachers always tell of William Borden. William Borden. He was a young man in the late 19th century and they always tell this story and I looked it up one time because they, they tell it all the time, preachers do. I think I'd told it before. He gave his life to missions. He was a rich kid. He, he was the condensed milk heir, like Borden's condensed milk for you foodies out there. And he gave up all his fortune and he wrote in his Bible, no reserves. And then he went onto the mission field and he wrote in his Bible, no retreat. He renounced all his wealth, all his privileges. And he became a missionary and, and he died really young. And a few days before he died, he supposedly wrote in his Bible under no reserve, no retreat, no regrets, no regrets, no regrets. And so I've always heard preachers tell that story, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. And it's an awesome kind of missionary example. The problem is, is the story is totally not true, or at least we have no reason to believe it. Nobody's had this Bible or found this Bible. It's just a story that preachers always tell, and they steal it from other preachers, Brotherhood of Thieves. So, so I looked him up. I ran into him in another book I was reading about Samuel Zwemer, the missionary to Islam. Awesome dude, long beard, impressive. He was one of the only people ever known to be the apostle to Islam. Well, he ran into William Borden, who was a rich kid, but he didn't own the condensed milk. His dad was a silver miner. And he was really, really smart, really hardworking. His mom took him to church in Chicago. He got saved under the preaching at Moody Church. And he, he just became really passionate about Jesus as a teenager, just, just your same age. The difference is his parents were super rich. And they sent him on a trip around the world when he was 16, thinking like this will show him kind of the world so he can be a big time businessman and help run the silver mines and you know, go to school and do all that. Well, they sent him on this, this chaperone church around the whole world. He traveled all around many different countries. And every place he went, all he could think about is how these people in this country didn't know Jesus. You see, he was aware that there was a time when he was not a people and now he was a people. There was a time when he had not received mercy and now he had received mercy. There was a time when he was in the dark and now he's in the light. And so whether he went to Kenya or to France or to Russia or to Australia, wherever it was, he just had this burden for lost people. 
And his trip was over and he came home and he told his parents he wanted to be a missionary. And they said, William, you gotta go to college. Well, he wasn't a slacker and his parents were loaded, so he went to Yale. And at Yale, he completely devoted himself to the church. He, he loved poor people. He ministered to homeless people in between classes. Someone once visited a church associated with Yale's campus that William Borden went to. They were visiting from overseas and they said the greatest thing they saw in America is the, the son of a millionaire huddled with a homeless person praying with him. This was William Borden. He could not, not preach the gospel. He could not, not care about the souls of lost people. And so when he's done with college, he did renounce all his opportunities to run the family business, to be a rich kid, to be successful, and he moved to the Middle East. He wanted to minister to Muslims in China, but he wanted to understand Islam first, to, to reach these people with the gospel. So he moved to Cairo and spent time in the Middle East. He was 25 years old. He was there for two weeks. He was ministered to and instructed by Samuel Zwemer, this famous missionary to the Muslims. This guy showed enormous potential. He was smart, he was hardworking, and more than anything else, he was compassionate about souls. He was there two weeks in Cairo. He got meningitis and died at age 25. What do you do with that? Is that a wasted life? I don't know if he wrote those words in his Bible. No reserves, no regret, no retreat. Those are certainly true of a life like that but I don't know if that's facts. Here's what the facts were. His mother was visiting him in Egypt and she was there when he died and she made sure that his gravestone buried there in that foreign land, never able to tell anyone about Jesus, but a heart so full of the desire to do so she had this inscribed on his gravestone. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. I don't know if you're gonna to live to be 25 or 55, or 85. But it should be said, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of your life, that apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Because every Christian ought to be amazed with the church in God's story, and aware of our need to participate in that story. Father, help these students to follow your command to go and tell and show and worship and make the name of Jesus great because it is great. To show him worthy because he is worthy. to be committed to God's people because you're committed to God's people. Help them to seek out that involvement in their local churches so that they can be a part of that disciple-making process and part of that evangelism organized to reach the world for the glorious name of Jesus. And it's in that matchless name we pray, amen.